Hello and welcome to Peach Pod, a Georgia politics podcast. My name is Kyle Hayes and I'm joined as always by my good friend Luke Boggs. Luke, how you doing? I'm doing all right. Just trying to survive. How about you? Doing all right. Same old, same old, pretty much. Um, We've got another packed show for you guys this week. Uh, We've got three topics that we're going to cover this week. Um, The first topic that we're going to discuss is a case about political gerrymandering that is being heard by the Supreme Court during this term. Um, as we talked a little bit about before, Luke Luke has some expertise and some background in gerrymandering and redistricting and how those shape the political process. And we're going to talk a little bit about how the Supreme Court, for the first time, may try to s- come up with some sort of legal standard that a court can interpret and base decisions about gerrymandering, redistricting maps, uh, base those decisions on whether or not they're constitutional or not. So we'll dig into that Supreme Court case. And then for our second topic this week, uh, we're going to talk about President Trump's decision to decertify the Iran nuclear deal. This was a deal that was agreed to during the Obama administration, one that Republicans in Congress and Donald Trump on the campaign trail were heavily critical of. Um, And it is another piece in what was several moves this week by the Trump administration to try to tear away just a little bit at Barack Obama's legacy. And then for our third topic, we're going to take a look at the way Trump interacts with Congress and how Trump is using Congress to kind of punt his problems to in a way that is not unlike previous presidents, but it is very confusing if you're in Congress Uh, especially with the way that he also talks about members of Congress, including people like Bob Corker, who he's been in a war of words with, uh, both on Twitter and in the press in the last couple weeks or so. Um, So we're going to talk about the way that Trump has been working with Congress and and really more so the way he has not been working with them very well. Uh, But we will dive right into our first topic this week. The Supreme Court is hearing a case where for the first time the court might set a standard by which they can judge state redistricting plans. And these are basically where the way in which states set up the districts that both state legislators and members of Congress run in, uh, both in Democratic and Republican states, legislatures, when they've had full control of the process, have at times used the redistricting process to try to advantage their own party, Um, It's something we've talked a little bit about before on this show, but for the first time, the court may step in and say that partisan gerrymandering, using the maps to give one party an inherent advantage over another, um, is something that would be considered unconstitutional. Um, But Luke, can you just kind of walk us through some of the basics of how all this gerrymandering gobbledygook works? Yeah, so the basics of gerrymandering, I mean, the first thing I remember is that this is something that has actually been going on pretty much since the founding of the Republic. Uh, Massachusetts Governor Elbridge Gerry was the first uh, person accused of gerrymandering, and that was all the way back in 1812. Um, and, you know, back then it was pretty simple where they just drew <laughs> lines on, you know, pieces of paper and combined a bunch of different areas that weren't really all that close but and you know the first one kind of looked like a salamander so that's the whole idea of where the the gerrymander uh comes from and you know making a joke about the guy's name so of course america is full of uh puns in our democracy but really what was more common was that as cities began to grow and you know states population centers changed dramatically uh congress just didn't well, sorry, not Congress, but the state representatives and state legislators in general just did not change their maps at all. And so what ended up happening is there's a bunch of these rural districts that barely had anybody in them that were having way outsized influence. And so during the 1960s, there were a bunch of court cases that basically said, uh, hey, states, you actually have to like change your maps and have them based off of population again. And so that was a pretty big change. And in that change, they, you know, people still wanted to find ways to hold on to political power. And for a while, uh, that was not very sophisticated. But, uh, you know, go into the 1980s and 1990s, especially in the advent of computers being used pretty commonly, 
uh, some really, really advanced techniques started to get used. Uh, three of the biggest ones are known as packing, stacking, and cracking. Uh, we'll start with uh, cracking because that's probably the one you see the most and it's the easiest to see. And these are when you take large concentrations of minority voters or just a group of voters you're trying to uh, go against and you crack them into multiple districts. A great example of this is actually athens Clark County, uh, which is cracked on both the state and federal level when it comes to our maps. Uh, athens Clark County is split into two different congressional districts when that's completely unnecessary as far as like population concerns go. Uh, again, it's split into three uh, different state house seats and two different state senate seats when you know there, there's ways you could draw it that would not split up athens in the insane way that it is split up another way that you can do another uh thing you can do is stacking which is where you have a small amount of different minority or any population that you're trying to subvert their political power and you just put them all into one district so you have a district that you know, has like 80% Democratic vote, and there's just a lot of voter inefficiency, which is something I know this court case is very interesting in, is the idea that there is so-called wasted votes. So that is uh, something to be considered, and packing is one of the best ways to do that. You see that a lot in urban areas, which, you know, already have a lot of voters concentrated into one place, and so it's really, really easy to uh, do that. And then uh, there is uh, packing, which is where you try to basically make as many districts where the majority party can win by stacking a lot, uh, I'm sorry, by packing the other side's voters into a couple districts. And so, for example, if there was like four districts that were going to be made into a single area, what you do is you'd like split three of them to where the majority party would win roughly like 55% of the vote. And then you'd have like one seat where the other uh, side is, you know, the, the minority side's winning like 90% of the vote. So it's similar to stacking, but it's not exactly the same. So, yeah, the root of this Supreme Court case, it deals a lot with those uh, methods for gerrymandering cracking and stacking and packing districts. Um, basically this, you know, the court's experience with gerrymandering goes back, like you said, to the 1960s. But in more recent times, um, Justice Kennedy, the swing justice on the court, has written in different opinions for different cases that he's troubled by extreme partisan gerrymandering. But the difficulty for him and for the courts broadly has been that there isn't some kind of workable standard where the court can look at a series of cases or a series of maps and say, you know, maps A, B, and C are clearly gerrymandered by some agreed-upon neutral standard, while maps D, C, D, E, F, and so on are not, judging based on that same standard. And so how we got to this case actually is that there are a couple of uh, experts in this field, a University of Chicago law professor named Nicholas Stephanopoulos and a political scientist named Eric McGee, who devised a measure where they basically attempt to combine all of the votes that are wasted due to packing and stacking and cracking and come up with one clean number where you can measure on a by-district basis how many votes are quote-unquote wasted. And what that basically means is that any vote that is not necessary to win a race, so for the winning candidate, 50% plus one, and for the losing candidate, all of their votes, all of those votes that are not necessary for winning are considered to be wasted votes because they don't contribute to a winner. And so basically the way this measurement looks is you take – an entire map of districts, and in Georgia we have 180 in the House and 50-something in the Senate, and you look at the map of all of those districts and you count up all the wasted votes that favor one party, all the wasted votes that favor another party, and then you um, come up with the difference between the two. And if the amount of wasted votes is roughly equal, then you have a map that doesn't systemically favor one party over the other. Um the reason that this case is before the court now is because 
like in a lot of Republican-led states, Wisconsin was very aggressive about how they did partisan gerrymandering after the 2010 midterms. And when you take a look at using the measure developed by these two experts, when you take a look at their map, it becomes really clear that they've made a map that does two things, that it it is very clear that it advantages the Republicans in the legislature. They get very they get many more seats than they do as a share of the total popular vote across the entire state, across basically the entire map of all of the districts. And then another piece of this is that not only does it advantage them in the current election, but by this measure, um, it advantages them across many elections, which is what contributes to this idea that you know, the 2010 election was very important. The 2020 election will be very important because states typically redistrict after the census. And those maps, barring any mid-decade redistricting, are what stand throughout the decade until the next census. And so if you gerrymander effectively enough, you can you can essentially cement your party into power for an entire decade at a time. And, you know, depending on how the political waves come and go like they usually do. We notice that in presidential elections and in the way the Congress changes hands every six, eight, 10 years, you can devise a map on the state level that basically makes your partisan majority immune to whatever the national partisan tide is. And so that's that's basically the case before the court is, is Wisconsin is the example of this. Uh, but if the the plaintiffs in this case are successful in arguing that this standard developed by experts should be a standard that the court could use, then it would open up all kinds of other redistricting plans to this same test by the court to determine if a partisan redistricting scheme is a violation of the Constitution. I think, well, I think there's another element we should talk about before we get into anything else, which is one of the things that has made the court get more involved in redistricting cases to begin with are the fact that in modern times, partisan gerrymandering is so tied to racial gerrymandering and that the way that you create a partisan advantage is by creating racial disadvantages and that you, if you stack or pack or crack minority populations and not just minority party populations, but, you know, minority racial populations, that is how you've been able to successfully create very pro-one-party maps. And the thing is, is that is very explicitly unconstitutional. You can't make maps that are racially gerrymandered. And so I will be interested to see how much of that, if, if the court does decide that partisan gerrymandering is not okay, how much is it due to the fact that to be successful in partisan gerrymandering, most of the time you have to have a very heavy-handed racial component because that is what basically invalidated the maps in North Carolina uh, that happened a year or so ago uh, because the gerrymandering was so very clearly racial. And that is um, pretty much the case in most maps that I've seen is that there's a very heavy-handed racial element to them. So I, you know, personally am against partisan gerrymandering, whether it's racial or not, but I'll be curious to see if the final test that they come up with has that component in it or not. Um, Another thing um, I think it would be valuable for us to mention is the fact that a lot of our knowledge from this comes from the same source, and that is uh, the excellent UGA professor Charles Bullock, who wrote a great book, uh, Redistricting, where... um, a lot of this is just covered in extensive detail. And so I would recommend that book to anyone who is interested in this topic and interested in learning more about it. Um, it's been very invaluable in me and kind of wrapping my head around how this stuff works and the history of it, which I think is very important to seeing where, where we are and where we're going with this technology. And just another plug for Bullock, if you happen to be a young UGA student entering your political science degree, take Southern politics while you're there. It was my favorite class I ever took when I was there. But Luke, you've talked a little bit before about having these nonpartisan redistricting commissions. Um, How do you think that approach would be different than what is being proposed in this court case, which is basically using a mathematical formula to analyze an existing map and determine if that map is systemically biased or not. It's sort of something that doesn't include 
people on the face of it. It's, it's really just a mathematical calculation. Um, but how do you think that approach would differ from the nonpartisan commissions that you've talked about before? Since it's never really been in practice, it's hard to know how the mathematical approach would differ. In general, the priorities of the nonpartisan commission approach are a little bit different because uh, the nonpartisan commissions could still theoretically come up with like very partisan maps. And so it's just like, it's a question of like what the goals are because, and this is something I think we're going to get into later, but um, John, former Congressman John Barrow, who's now running for secretary of state, he has a proposal, which I would like put on, you know, if this is a spectrum and, uh, gerrymandering is on one side and then John Barrow's proposals on the other side, the two proposals that we're talking about are somewhere in the middle. Um, because what former Congressman Barrow is suggesting, instead of allowing gerrymandering to go on, which is pretty much the current status in most states, we should do the exact opposite and actually force a legislatures or a nonpartisan commission to prioritize competitiveness over all other considerations to create as many swing districts as possible. Um, Now, I think that's a very ambitious proposal, and I don't know how it would look effectively. And, um, you know, the idea was laid out there in a Washington Post article. So, you know, it obviously was not like a white paper (laughs) on the proposal. And so I would be, you know, curious about how it would fit in with other considerations which a nonpartisan commission would take in so back to the nonpartisan commission which is somewhere between barrow's proposal and uh the gerrymandering with uh the new mathematical approach probably being a little bit closer to barrow than gerrymandering the nonpartisan commissions take in a lot of considerations compactness of the district so as in you know does you know in georgia there's districts that go all the way from savannah to augusta So that's obviously like a huge, huge geographical space. So the nonpartisan commissions would try to cut down on that. They try to have overlapping geographical and uh, political boundaries. So, for example, as I mentioned earlier, where a lot of Athens is cracked up into multiple districts, they try to cut down on that. So you wouldn't have a situation which is pretty common in Georgia for like your neighbor to have a different state rep than you, but maybe the same state standard, but then they have a different congressman than you, and then they have a different board and school board member than you. And it's pretty insane. It's really hard for people to keep track of what districts they're in. So they try to cut down on that. And they try to, you know, connect communities of interest and all these other considerations that the mathematical approach explicitly doesn't have to do. Now, you know, the the thing is that's interesting is if the Supreme Court decides that they are going to say that partisan gerrymandering is no longer okay, I mean, theoretically, they could force everybody to take those things into consideration and say, like, that's how you combat partisan gerrymandering because, like, this has never happened before and the Supreme Court has, uh, in the past, created rules that previously did not exist and create tests that previously did not exist. So it's really hard to predict just how far they'll go with it and what direction it'll lead them to. That's a long way of saying, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I think it kind of depends on how much advice the court takes from the experts in this case. So, so the, the people that have come up with this measure, they have basically designated uh, a threshold of 7% so that for any given map in a state, not more than 7% of the votes are wasted in a single direction, which means that you can't have a map that is seven points more favorable to Republicans or Democrats on average across all of the districts. And that so that if you're under that threshold of 7%, theoretically, your map would be constitutional by the standard that the experts propose. But if it goes beyond that threshold, if it favors Republicans or Democrats by 10%, the court you know, if they just straight use the standard that the researchers are proposing would say they'd look at a map that has a 10% tilt one way or the other and say, okay, this is not constitutional. You have to try again. Um, it, uh, it would be interesting to see what other standards by which the court would ask states or, or map drawers of any kind to try again. Well, a, a good thing to point out right here, though, is back to the 
population and racial gerrymandering questions, seven percent's a great you know number just because seven's a magical number. They pull it out of God knows where. They just pick seven. Uh, you know, back in the day, it used to be like five percent population differences. But as computers and technology got more advanced, the standard for how much deviation there could be between population among your districts got lower and lower and lower. So it's really impossible to tell how strict they will make them be if the court decides to take up this mathematical approach. And that's why I really had a hard time wrapping my head around it because as the potential Barrow proposal you know, out there shows like you could, you could go all the way. Like there's nothing stopping you from making the districts as competitive as possible. And there's nothing stopping you from making the districts, you know, within 3% variance. There's nothing stopping you from making them between 1% or 2% or 10%. You know, like there's nothing stopping you because technology is so advanced. Now, if you set an arbitrary number, you're going to be able to get there with technology more than likely. You know, and so that's that's my big question is like, I don't know how you can draw the line in a, you know, in a way that would seem right and reasonable to everyone that isn't just eliminating it. You know, that's that's the big the big question, because that's where the court eventually got on the population question, because before they allowed like significant variance in population in the pre 1960s period, they didn't even care. Now you can't have any population deviations between your districts. So I guess that that would be like my big question is like if you're going to say gerrymandering's bad and we're not going to allow it anymore, then like where do you draw that line? And I kind of feel like the 7% was just a number they picked. And may, maybe it's not, but that's that's the way it kind of feels to me. Well, to some extent, I think I think they would argue just having reviewed their work, this wasn't the the actual threshold number isn't something that I've seen extensively discussed, but that there are other considerations like keeping communities, similar communities together. So like you could theoretically come up with a 0% deviation map, but to do so, you might have to cut through Athens the way that maps do now um, for certain kinds of things. And so I think that's to some extent what the threshold is for. But the interesting thing about the question that you get with the threshold that is interesting to me is the discussion over gerrymandering has sort of been this stand in over why Republicans have a systemic advantage in Congress and in many states where the popular vote or the partisan balance in a state is much more equal than what you would find in the state legislature. Georgia is one of those states where we perceive that Republicans have way more power than they actually should, given how many just Democrats live in the state versus how many you know state House seats or state Senate seats that the Democratic Party has in the state legislature. But the interesting thing about the threshold question is part of what these two researchers did in their work is they went back to previous maps and measured the wasted votes for each map going back to the 1970s in every state, and then compared it to this 7% threshold that they propose. The interesting thing is, they look at um, the most recent Republican map that they look at a Republican leaning map for Georgia is 2012. And they find that the 2012 map doesn't actually cross that 7% threshold, despite the fact that a lot of the discussion around gerrymandering in Georgia recently has been how Republicans have this systemic advantage. But that if you look back at state House maps and state Senate maps going back to the 1970s and 1980s, the Old South Democrats were actually doing, according to this measure, were actually doing gerrymanders that were much worse than the Republicans are allegedly doing, according to this measure today. Those maps from the 70s and 80s fall outside of this threshold proposed by the researchers, but the current map does not. Now, that to me, that sort of makes sense because you have, to some extent, you have Republican voters already sort of moving away from the Democratic Party at that time. They're starting to vote for Reagan and H.W. Bush, um, you know, they, I think they, they hung with Clinton in 92. I think George Clinton won Georgia in 92, but he lost it in 96, but slowly, but surely these voters are moving away from the Democrats to the Republicans in an ongoing political realignment. And so Democrats are trying to hold on to power 
the old the old South Democrats and in the combination of African American Democrats and and old white Democrats, um, they're trying to hold on to power during this time period. Whereas now, even on a you know just a straight popular vote basis, Republicans consistently win the popular vote in things like governors' races and statewide races. Um, and so that rings some sense to me. But you thought that was you thought that didn't sort of ring right to you when I told you that, like right, Luke. Right, but there. Now that I've had a little bit more time to think about it, there's some reasons it makes sense, and some reasons why I don't want the court to just adopt the mathematical standard without other considerations. Because part of what made the democratic maps, I I would believe mathematically be worse than the Republican maps, is the sense that. Democrats had to accomplish two things at once. If you're assuming that one of the goals is partisan gerrymandering, they also had to have majority minority districts because of the Voting Rights Act and because the Republicans very, very purposely partnered up with the African-American Democrats to increase the amount of African-American legislators that there were because a side effect of that would be what was known as bleaching districts at to... Um, basically create districts where African-Americans would make up a very, very large majority of the district to practically ensure that African-American would win. Because what was happening, in effect, around Georgia is that the Democratic Party as a whole goal would have been to create as many Democratic districts as possible. So to accomplish that in the changing realignment period of like the you know 1980s and 1990s, that we were just talking about, they had to connect a lot of urban areas. So just doing that alone would make it pretty hard to keep your math, that mathematical thing in line just because the state's moving around and you had situations like the map that John Barrow originally got elected to connecting Athens and Augusta and Savannah, which look at a map of Georgia, those are very, very far away from each other. So that's going to create a pretty weird district already. But then... On top of that, you're having to create majority-minority districts. And, you know, sometimes minority populations are not very close to each other, and so those are also going to create really distorted, really strange districts. And so, you know, the way that we handled that was to create these really long, weird districts that connected different populations. There was, you know, one congressional district that went, like, all the way around 285, basically. The way the Republicans handled that is they just pack everybody into the same district. So mathematically, it's a lot cleaner. That's what I'm trying to say, is to like do it, do what the Republicans are trying to do. Mathematically, is a lot cleaner than what we had to do in trying to gerrymander and create a lot of uh, majority-minority districts. So basically, the Republicans have a lot easier time because in bleaching the districts, which helps them elect more of their candidates that makes it mathematically simpler. How about let's let's wrap on this question because I'm always intrigued by this in the discussion of gerrymandering. It always is sort of pitched as sort of this silver bullet solution to fixing democracy or something like that and and I think that the claims that gerrymandering can solve a lot of democracy's problems are somewhat overrated. Um but what do you think sort of the practical political effect would be if the court adopts some sort of test where they can at least modestly patrol very bad partisan gerrymanders and kind of at least keep it within some sort of acceptable framework, more so than we have been at any other point in our history. Okay, so to answer that question, I have a couple key assumptions. One, they're going to adopt some mathematical test, but two, that mathematical test is going to be tempered by other considerations like compactness, like uh similar political boundaries stuff like that because if you just go playing mathematical that's going to create maps that are almost crazier i think so i'm assuming if the court does decide that they're going to step in that they'll they'll step in with both feet and that they're going to look at the whole picture because the the biggest complaint about gerrymandering is the fact that it splits up communities and that it elects people in a way that doesn't make practical sense. And as I know, one of the justices was asking, it's like what, like what 
good to democracy does gerrymandering do? So if they're going to decide that they're going to go after gerrymandering, they're going to have to do that element. So that's my first consideration. So under that scenario where they have that two-pronged test of some like subjective factors versus some mathematical factors the practical good would come over time because even if they change the map some incumbents are going to hold in uh, i mean hold out uh but if we just fix gerrymandering and we don't do any of the like radical solutions like jungle primaries or barrow suggestion that we make maps as competitive as possible like we, if we're not doing that stuff and we're not doing something insane like proportional representation, then what I think we'd see is we'd see people have a, a little bit more faith in the process because it's going to be a little bit easier to understand. And there's going to be a little bit of seat changes where, you know, places that very clearly like Athens should probably be electing multiple Democrats start doing that. I think it's just going to help the process significantly and it'll be over time that you might see uh, less extreme candidates get elected because folks would not have to be as worried about their primaries because the way that you create maps that keep incumbents and keep the majority party safe in the general election, by and large, are the same types of districts that elect really radical people. And so if you're making those districts less of a sure thing and not only individual politicians but the parties start to get concerned if they elect if they you know nominate radical people that they will lose in the general election then i think that will moderate uh the party and that will in you know in effect kind of help them police themselves in a way that they can't do it right now is texas a partisan gerrymander they elected ted cruz yeah, but that, but that's singing. Yeah, that's singing. I'm so just kidding, that's that's but. a different thing. But <laughs> I yeah. I think that's a partisan gerrymander. The state of Texas. Um, <laughs> no, I think the the thing that stands out to me is that the belief that it would sort of lead you know make it really easy for Democrats to achieve power in the state legislature in Georgia, I think is is way overblown in terms of what the actual practical political impact would be. I do think that one of the things that we've seen with states that have gerrymandered is that their state legislatures are very close to the supermajority, superminority composition where Democrats in Georgia have sort of toyed around with being on the superminority line where they're one third or less of the legislature. And what that means for practical considerations in Georgia is that constitutional amendments require two thirds of the legislature to agree to them. And part of what we think of with that two thirds requirement is that anything that meets that threshold probably has bipartisan support. But when Republicans control two thirds of the legislature, they can pass constitutional amendments that are very partisan in nature. And so I think that that would be one place where there would be a concrete improvement in terms of Georgia governance in that constitutional amendments that we consider would have to have some element of bipartisan support and more than just one or two Democrats that could be bought off for their support for an amendment. And that because of that, the ones that we might consider would probably not be Republican partisan goals, but instead would be ones that are that are broadly agreed upon across the state. Which, I mean, you just you just frame that as if that's not a huge tectonic shift in the politics of Georgia. I mean, that would be really amazing it'd be a really great thing and then i mean the other thing is too is like things that like a lot of georgians see as pretty stiff necessities like transportation and investing and you know being more forward thinking and how we fund education i think would become a lot easier conversations because um democrats would have more seats we'd have more votes and we have more of a say in what happens on almost every single issue because right now you know most of the contentious issues will lose some republican votes and so they'll have to look to democrats to get over the finish line if there's more democrats then that means we have more of a say over uh the final look of bills if we're providing more of the votes needed to pass it on the other practical side effect of that is that for legislative republicans that would argue for a tax increase for something like the road, the gas tax increase that we did a few years ago. Um, they could force more Democrats to carry the vote 
and have fewer Republicans that actually have to vote for a tax increase. So for legislative leaders, that might actually be be somewhat of a benefit to have more Democrats to pass the hard stuff on to. Um, but with that, I think we'll leave that topic there and move to our second topic for the week. Late last week, Donald Trump gave a speech in, once in, in which he announced that he was decertifying the Iran nuclear deal, a deal that was agreed to in 2015 between former President Barack Obama and five leading countries in the United Nations, China, France, Russia, the United Kingdom, and Germany. And then all five of those countries agreed with Iran to come up with a nuclear deal, which basically does two things. It creates arguably a new and the most invasive inspections regime ever developed for an international nuclear deal. And in return for Iran accepting these inspections, they are going to have sanctions that were placed on their economy in an effort to get them to give up their nuclear ambitions. They're going to have these sanctions removed, some of which have already been removed, and and some of these are removed kind of on a rolling basis. Um, That was the agreement. The agreement was heavily criticized by Republicans in Congress at the time. They came up with a, a law that basically inserted Congress as an oversight mechanism on this deal because Barack Obama argued that he could make this deal under some existing statutes and he didn't have to offer this agreement as a treaty to the Congress to ratify. Um, But Congress came up with a method by which they would provide oversight on this deal. And one of the components of that oversight is that every 90 days, the President of the United States has to certify that Iran is complying with its end of the deal. And so Trump has now twice had to certify that a deal that he hates, the Iran nuclear deal, that Iran is certifying, that Iran is complying with their commitments under this end of the deal. And so basically what happened is Trump refused to certify that, and he kicks this issue to Congress for what's known as a 60-day review period, where Congress can decide to either reimpose the sanctions that the U.S. had lifted on Iran, not the sanctions lifted by all the countries party to the deal, just the sanctions that the U.S. has lifted, um, or to keep the sanctions lifted but come up with some sort of new standard or amendment to the U.S.'s understanding of the deal, whereby sanctions would be reimposed later. So basically, Trump, this is sort of a, a compromise where Trump doesn't have to get up there and make a speech saying or put out a statement saying that Iran is complying with this deal that he thinks is terrible. Um, And then he gets to kick the issue to Congress to have them figure out whether or not we're actually going to stay in the deal or whether or not we're going to leave for some reason that we can come up with. Um, So Luke, when you saw this news, what did you think about this move by Trump and his ongoing quest to nullify achievements from the Obama administration? Well, I'm happy you framed him that way because to me, when I saw this, it's just like, why did Trump do this? Uh, well, it's just because it's something Obama did and he doesn't like it. Because the thing that I find fascinating about this and about like DACA and about healthcare is that there's never an alternative provided to like the position that Obama held. It's just like we're no longer holding that position. <laughs> Which, you know, invariably means that they're holding a new position, but they will never articulate what that new position is and what the ramifications of the new position is. It's just that they're no longer holding Obama's position. And so, I mean, that's the thing. That was my first thought with this. And, you know, the second thing I did when I saw this was ask a bunch of my friends who were in D.C., like what what does this mean and most most of the responses i got from people that like work on the hill and people that like watch congress to you know get their paycheck was like i don't know (laughs) and he's like we don't know we don't know what this means or where this is gonna go because i mean the thing is it's like let's let's do the best case scenario for this situation in Trump is that like the United States for some reason actually believes that Iran is not following through on their obligations and they're not gonna do what they said they're gonna do, but we're the only people that know, so that's why we're the only people that are gonna decertify, and for some reason we decide not to share that information with the rest of the world. I mean what's gonna happen is like we're the only country that's gonna 
reimpose sanctions on them and nobody else will. And so, you know, effectively we're going to lose the moral high ground that we had by making this deal. And Iran's not going to really have a lot of reason to trust us to follow through on our side because we've stopped following through. So they're not really going to have much of a reason to follow through on their end. So, I mean, this is really a lose lose for us by doing this. And, and I know we're going to get into this with our, our third topic, but it's just like, to me, this seems like Trump is making a, you know, a political decision with a lot of very, very huge national security consequences. And the fact that Congress is just going to let him get away with that is pretty ridiculous because I'm sure there's a lot of Republicans that have very different worldviews than I do, but they very, very sincerely believed that the Iran deal as formulated was too weak or that it was going to set up you know, the United States for eventual war with Iran or that it's going to allow them to get a nuclear weapon at some point. I believe that you can sincerely hold that. Now, I also, you know, hold that belief. I believe that belief is wrong and that you're misguided if you believe that based on how tough the regime that the Obama, you know, uh, administration got put in place. But I believe you could believe that. But at the same time, pursuing the policy in the way that the Trump administration is cannot be part of your goals in that because to actually successfully prevent Iran from getting a nuclear weapon without the use of military force requires the rest of the world on your side. And right now, no one is on our side on this. And this does not seem like Trump is going out and trying to make the case for why we should not recertify the Iran deal as we're supposed to to me it seems like he's like I don't want to be the one who's signing you know signing the piece of paper that says Iran's okay and he's you know punting the ball to Congress and saying you deal with it yeah I mean the reporting suggests that the reason that we ended up in this situation is that it is U.S. law that requires the president to certify this deal every 90 days the actual text of the Iran deal that the P5 plus one countries and Iran agreed to doesn't require this. It doesn't require the U.S. government to do anything. We're party to the deal until we say that we're not. And so Trump, you know, conceivably could stop certifying the deal, stop making these announcements at all. And, and Congress would sort of be, you know, they would be the ones that would have to enforce Trump having to certify this deal um, because they're the ones wronged you know, based on the structure of the law when he doesn't. Um, and so I don't know, you know, if he had taken that path and just sort of skipped the deadline and didn't pay any attention to it and did what Congress does with deadlines all the time. Um, I'm not sure that they would have really pushed back all that hard because that at least would have been a quieter way for Donald Trump to save face. Um, but not having to certify the deal. The interesting thing though, is I actually, as I looked into this more, the reason that we're in this place is because, Trump's the the members of Trump's Trump's administration, the National Security Advisor Henry McMaster, Defense Secretary Mattis, and Secretary of State Tillerson, they all believe that Iran is complying with the deal and that it is in the United States' best interest to continue to be a party to the deal. And every time that Trump has had to recertify the deal, the reporting from inside the White House suggests that this only happens after these big knockdown drag out fights where Mattis, McMaster, and Tillerson are all fighting up against the president, basically dragging him, kicking and screaming to make him do this thing that he doesn't want to do. And so instead of having this fight again for the third time when the deal was due to be, when the recertification was due last Sunday, they basically said, we won't recertify but we'll punt to Congress who doesn't really want to address this issue anyways, or at least a majority of Republicans may not want to pull the U S out of the deal. And then we'll kind of live in this sort of intermediate condition, which has no bearing on the actual text of the deal from an international context. It only has bearing as to whether or not we're honoring the congressional oversight provisions of a law that was passed by Congress in conjunction with this deal. Um, so in some sense it's, Sort of like the way other international agreements are negotiated, where you have two countries that are, you know, going at each other, they have contrary positions, but they want to come to an agreement because an agreement would be better than not having an agreement and having the threat of war. 
exist between two countries over an issue. But both leaders have to find some way to save face with their own people in this agreement. And so the way that this sort of detente is negotiated is that Trump doesn't have to say that he certifies the deal anymore. He can say it's a bad deal. And that is a message that he's clearly delivering to his base, who, because Trump has talked about the Iran deal since the election, also believes that it's a bad deal, despite probably not understanding what's in it. And then the rest of the Congress, the rest of the administration that probably agrees with the deal in some sense, even if they would make some changes or make it more aggressive, gets to sort of live with that outcome. Um, but the the price of that is the international community looks on and we look like we're completely disoriented. And, and our position and what we want as a nation is not clear because we have this you know, gross disagreement on display because yeah. it's not clear and <laughs> there's yeah. nothing um, that we want. And so it's, it's a, it's a weird place that we've ended up in. Um, just to bring a little bit of a Georgia tie into this though, um, David Perdue, Georgia Senator, he's been critical of the Iran deal. Um, even, you know, since, since he was elected in 2014, he's been very critical of it. Um, and he has been on previous legislation with Arkansas Senator Tom Cotton, who, basically has tried to find legislative avenues to undermine the deal or roll it back. Um, Purdue signed a letter with Tom Cotton earlier this year outlining alleged violations of the deal that Iran has committed and arguing that the whole Trump administration, not just Trump, but all of his advisors should argue that Iran is not complying with the deal. Now, McMaster, Madison, Tillerson don't agree with that assessment clearly because they've argued that Iran is complying Um, But Purdue has been a part of that skeptical camp that really wants to see the deal changed. Um, He's been a voice for that. But it's not clear that there are a majority of Republicans, particularly in the Senate, that are going to roll this thing back and find something better. Um, And the only other thing, the thing I'd kind of close this topic out with is the alternative to this deal is not really some other deal. How does Iran or the rest of the international community think that a Trump administration is going to honor any kind of deal? He's not been consistent on anything at all. So the alternative would be some sort of military action. And can you imagine Donald Trump managing a full-scale war and the like time commitment, the energy, the trying to convince the American people that this is a just war for some reason? Can you imagine him like seeing that responsibility through as president, because that is one thing that I cannot see him doing at all. Yeah. I mean, at this point, I kind of think he just like, wouldn't, he just wouldn't do it. Like we like would be at war and like, he would talk about like whoever tweeted at him or whoever said something, like a music award show back about him. Like he seems just so disconnected from, the traditional role that the president is supposed to play during a crisis or during, you know, a large, any, any issue. He's like just not connected to it at all because I mean, just for like two examples of how he's handled things um, thus far is like, you know, one of the things that the Obama administration pointed out so much is like during the heat of the healthcare fight, like Obama, like went on TV, went before Congress and just like, took every question that, like, he possibly could have about the healthcare bill, like, for a day, like, or a couple days. And, like, Trump, like, did not even seem to know that there was a healthcare bill a lot of the time. And he's just, like, he's so disconnected from it. And, you know, again, with, like, the whole situation with all the natural disasters that we've had, he's just so personally disconnected from what's happening on the ground and that most of the information that he gets seems to be not from the government but from television and from, you know, things that he hears third hand and that's why he, like, flies off the handle at, like, a mayor in Puerto Rico instead of, like, knowing what's actually going on, you know, going on down on the ground with Eric, just like I couldn't, I couldn't imagine what his role would be because it kind of goes back to that, you know, that rumor that we heard about with John Kasich right before the Republican convention that, you know, he was offered the deal to run domestic and foreign policy. And what would Trump do? Well, he'd make America great again. And like, it seems like that's what he thinks he's doing is that like he's going out and like talking about 
whatever the heck it is he's talking about and that like that somehow is making america look better and that's what he's doing while other people are handling the day-to-day administration of everything the thing i find fascinating is if you look at who he's put in place it's like the only team that seems to not be getting a lot of flack in the press is his, his national security team but that's because they really haven't been tested yet because everyone else has been putting a situation where they were tested and they failed i mean you know just to go down the line very quickly and this can kind of feed into our third topic but it's just like tom price had the biggest problem to face immediately which was the Republicans have been saying they're going to do something about healthcare for seven years, and now they have to do something, and they utterly failed, like on every single measure possible. They completely failed, but in a way that, fascinatingly, Trump as president seemed completely disconnected from, and that is a failure in his part of being disconnected from it, but like at the same time, it's just like he's not responsible in the sense that like he had no part in crafting it. So he's out. He's gone. Um you know, Betsy DeVos is at almost like every turn shown that she does not understand the pol- education policy or what the needs of uh, students in this country are. And every time a, you know, social issue as far as education comes up, she handles it in the completely wrong way. And if a crisis in education comes up, I don't have much faith in her to handle it. And same thing with Rex Tillerson, where we're in a time where we need diplomacy more than ever and in a lot of ways his hot his hands been tied from not having uh the appointees that he needs and not having a budget but also just his lack of familiarity with diplomacy you know that there's been a lot of rancor about how he's handled that position so if we got in this position where we're having to do anything militarily speaking with iran i don't have a lot of faith in this team that he's built to handle it because they effectively would be on their own. Yeah. And I think, and and we'll kind of blend into our third topic here, but, but just to kind of wrap on that point, there's been a lot of criticism of Tillerson for how he's done the job, but a lot of the reporting that I've seen makes it sound like, you know, and, and Bob Corker alluded to this in the, the blockbuster interview he gave with the New York times, where there's a group of people in the administration who are, keeping Trump from doing something stupid and getting us into World War III. Now, the interesting thing there is that really none of the cabinet secretaries, at least as far as I've seen, are pursuing some sort of long-term goal in the way that John Kerry worked for a couple of years on the Iran deal. And I think even Hillary Clinton sort of helped with some of the beginnings of that when she was Secretary of State. Um, you know, the HHS secretaries during the Obama administration were implementing the Affordable Care Act. They, you know, secretaries in the Obama administration had long-term goals that throughout the Obama administration, throughout the duration of his two terms, they were trying to achieve these goals. Trump hasn't really set these goals out for the other cabinet secretaries, but going to war with Iran would create some sort of long-term goal where you have to win the military conflict, then you have to create some sort of stable environment in Iran post the overthrow, post regime change or the overthrow of of that government. Um, And so not only would the cabinet secretaries involved, the secretary of defense and state and and all the people who were, you know, super involved in the way that, that they were in Iraq and Afghanistan during the Bush administration, they would have to pursue this long-term goal of regime change and stabilization of Iran post-war, all the while also continuing to put out the day-to-day crisis fires that Trump seems to get himself into on North Korea and with the NFL and all the other stuff that has sort of clogged up the news cycle during his administration. That, to me, is just like a Herculean task. Um, and one that you need presidential leadership on, but the president is the problem. So that's why you're not having presidential leadership on these things. Um, but I think that's kind of a good way to blend into the third topic, because the other way in which you haven't had presidential leadership is being is having President Trump be a leader on the agenda in Congress um, in terms of working with members of Congress to get Republican agenda items through to get them to the president's desk for signature. Um, we've kind of talked about all of the the different problems that have gone into this and, you know, the failure to repeal ACA, 
um, all of the other things that Trump has struggled on. But just sort of to kind of sum it all up, Luke, what do you think is, you know, what is broken here? Is it is it all Donald Trump's fault? Does Congress have some sort of obligation to try to manage him too? You know, why is this relationship between the Trump administration and Congress just so toxic? I mean, at this point, I I would need a very convincing argument to tell me it's not Trump. Now, could Congress adapt to that? I think they could, but I don't think I don't think that's typical because just just to like make it as simple as possible like just thinking about the georgia state legislature it like it would be inconceivable for us to have a governor that didn't have an opinion (laughs) and didn't have a clearly articulated position on like the major stuff we've been pushing because just like on you know of course there's always little bills there's always like little fixes and stuff that needs to be done that like the governor is not gonna like talk about but like any of the big policy issues the governor is not only talking about and having has a clear position on it but usually is the one like pushing it the hardest and with a lot of things that happen at the capitol i could not imagine them happening without the governor being the one pushing them really really hard to have them actually get across the finish line so I mean, at this point, it's just like that work is hard. That work takes a lot of cajoling and a lot of meetings and a lot of understanding where other people are coming from. And it just does not seem like Donald Trump is interested in doing that. It seems like he's interested in, you know, promoting his image and attacking those that attack his image and attack his stances and attack his legitimacy is what it seems like that's what he's interested in doing and i mean at the end of the day as a republican legislator if you wanted to actually get something done having donald trump as the leader of your party is just like antithetical to that not just because he really doesn't hold your positions or that he's a terrible person, which is all true, but it's just like, he's just utterly uninterested in like doing the job that you need a president to do. And the only thing that he is, is popular among a lot of your voters. And at the end of the day, I mean, that makes him being on the wrong side of him, a a big threat to a lot of these legislators. So, I mean, I think that's what, makes Congress so hesitant to do anything about it because they are pretty much convinced that Trump is more popular than they are and that if they go against him, his microphone is so much bigger that they're not going to be able to to stop him. And, you know, unfortunately, that's not going to be a good enough excuse when a real crisis happens. I mean, we've already had a real crisis in what happened in Puerto Rico and what happened across the country with a couple hurricanes that we had and we're lucky that it wasn't worse but if a bigger crisis happens this administration is just not prepared for it and I think that is so much worse than an administration that is you know that is qualified and confident or overconfident and makes a mistake and a miscalculation in the way that you know, the Bush administration did with the Iraq war. I mean, that was a tremendous mistake, but that was a well thought out policy that had some like flawed underlying, you know, worldview that built it. But like these guys would fumble the easiest ball to catch in the world. And so, I mean, the risks are so much higher because there's just situations that the Bush administration would never have gotten us into. You know, that's the thing, is that, like, George W. Bush, God bless him on so much of the mistakes he made in both Iraq and Afghanistan, but he went out of his way to prevent a war with Iran, because he knew and understood how bad that would be if that happened. And he was also very skeptical of Russia and did not want us to get close to them at all. And, you know, so there's there's just lines that, like, we knew they would not cross, and with the Trump administration, they don't seem to understand or be capable of getting Donald Trump to understand the cost of what he would do. Because another great example that we didn't talk about today, but have talked about before, is like North Korea. Is that like Donald Trump does not fundamentally seem to understand what the cost of a war with North Korea would be, and so because of that, 
it makes it so much harder for Congress to deal with him in any capacity because he doesn't seem to understand or want to understand what's going on beyond like an elementary level. And so because of that, he's impossible to work with because if you start trying to like explain the details, it just glazes past him. Yeah. And the other issue to, to kind of tie this into Congress is that he hasn't really set achievable goals that Republicans agree on. Um, you know, part of his thing with the healthcare bill was that he promised better coverage for lower prices and, and everything was just going to be fantastic in healthcare. And the ideas that Republicans had been working on since the passage of the Affordable Care Act weren't ideas that would meet the things that he laid out. And he was never engaged enough on the details to go to Republicans and say, no, this is not what I promised during the election. Um, But he also didn't know what they were working on and wasn't committed to ensuring that what he had promised his own base during the election was what Congress was going to do. So he didn't change the minds of Republicans in the legislature, and he hasn't changed the minds of his base to make them think whatever Republicans were going to come up with was going to be better and going to be what they wanted. And he's kind of done this on on everything. He was the candidate that was so anti-immigration, both illegal and legal. And then when he was making his consideration around the DACA program, he almost walked into a deal with Democrats that would have basically given the Democrats what they wanted on DACA for a very small price, all because the thing that is in his head is the wall. Um, And really his allies in Congress on the immigration issue are people that want to decrease legal immigration. David Perdue is one of those. He's on a bill that does that along with Tom Cotton. And only later in the process, once I think people in the legislative liaisons department like finally got their act together. Is he conditioning supporting an extension of DACA protections for some of the policies outlined in Purdue and Cotton's bill about limiting legal immigration and decreasing it? Um, And so if you're a Republican on any of these issues, you don't know what Trump wants and you don't know if later on when he finds out some abbreviated version of what you're doing is something that he doesn't like because it's getting bad press and and it's making his people upset that he won't just throw you under the bus the way he did with Jeff Flake and Bob Corker um, all because you're creating bad press for him. So he's not a reliable partner. Yeah. Cause I, I, you know, I just, I just like looked at my calendar and just like, Trump's been president for, you know, about 10 months. Well, more like, yeah, nine since he got inaugurated in January. It's just like they have no, no, like, long-term achievements that will last at all except Gorsuch. That's it. That's all they've got. And that is an insane, insane concept because literally every single thing that Trump has done besides Gorsuch could be reversed by a new president since almost everything he's doing has been an executive order. I think that this is the direct and almost predictable result of sort of the talk radio Congress, uh, conservative grassroots attitude towards politics since Obama was elected in that if you train an entire political movement on the idea that we have to oppose everything those dirty old liberals are doing, then you don't have a positive governing agenda at all. I mean, there is not a conservative version of achieving the goals that were achieved during the Obama administration, just doing it in a conservative way. And I think that's the challenge that they're that they're dealing with right now is that all these things that they put at the top of the agenda as problems don't have conservative solutions that are supported by people broadly. There is no, you know, it's not like, you know, in the Reagan era where taxes were much higher and you could make better cases for, for tax cuts. Um, you know, all of these things that are out there that are sort of the, the top true intellectual conservative agenda items don't actually address any of the problems that Trump's voters laid out there as being problems in their real lives. Um, and so there's a total disconnect. You know, the, the thing that we're used to is like somewhere between like how Obama and 
Bush and Clinton would handle these things where like the president's pushing it pretty hard and then they kind of compromise with Congress to come up with the final solution for the issue. Um, but you know, there's the other extreme that we've seen, which was, you know, the stereotype of the Jimmy Carter administration where he was like in the weeds on every single issue and was so micromanagey that nothing got done and Congress hated him for it. And now we have the exact polar opposite, which is a administration that is completely disinterested in everything and basically throws a lot of the big issues to Congress in the way that they've just thrown the Iran issue to Congress. They threw healthcare to Congress, which with almost no push from the administration on what they wanted, which again, as we mentioned earlier with the Tom Price thing, that's pretty surprising. And with DACA, Again, Trump goes out there and rails against immigrants, but at the same time is like, well, maybe we'll keep the DACA, pe- you know, the DACA folks here. And it's just like, there's no, as as a congressman or a senator, you could not honestly state that you know where Donald Trump stands on the issue because maybe you just got off the phone with him 10 seconds ago and he said, yeah, I agree with you. But then when someone else walks in and says the exact opposite thing, he'll be like, yeah, that sounds great. You know, so it's just like he's throwing all these things to Congress and he's not happy with the results he's getting because Congress cannot give him the results he wants because they don't know what they are and he doesn't know what he wants either. So it's just I I don't even know. I'm just flabbergasted. Well, I'm looking forward to Jared Kushner's tenure as Speaker of the House and maybe he can solve all those problems, too. Uh... Um, (laughs) Well, with that, I think we'll leave this rant there for this week. Um, But we will be back with another episode next week, and we will talk to you then. Bye, guys. That's our show for the week. If you like what you heard, share the show with a friend and go over to iTunes and give us a rating or a review. It really helps other people find our show. We'll be back with another episode of Peach Pod next week. Until then, take care, y'all.